This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. Hi there, everyone. Today, I am joined by Evan Helder, and Evan is a super sharp observer and analyst, number one of some of the key technology trends driving, fueling the exponential age, and number two, most importantly, of us, of we humans, individually and collectively, and he's a super sharp analyst of what these technologies mean and what the exponential age means for all of us, what the implications are for us. He also has a deeply interesting career history for this moment because Evan, back in 2017, 2018, was working inside a startup that was trying really hard to nail an early version of a mixed reality, virtual reality headset. And that gives him a really unique perspective on the look, the launch of the Apple Vision Pro on the metaverse more broadly. These days he works at Amazon. He writes a newsletter called Medium Energy, and we can talk a bit about why it's called that because I love that story. Um, but we are here to talk to Evan about the metaverse, about AI, about the collision between the two because he's building frameworks there that I just think need to be on your radar. So I am super excited to dive in. Evan. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you for that kind, warm intro. Excited to be here. I feel like we share worldviews. I'm excited to meld like-minded minds here. Thank you. It's just, it's so great to have you here. Now, look, as a way into this, I mean, I was reading Medium Energy, which is a brilliant newsletter, recommended highly. Um, it's yeah. about two years old now. You know, I scanned back to the to the early days of, of medium energy. And it was like, yeah, you know, Dali 2 has just launched. It's blowing people's minds with this uh, text to image model that creates pretty good images. Um, Meta has just, you know, Facebook's just renamed itself as Meta and so on. The crazy thing about where we are now and the exponential age, uh, is that almost feels like ancient history now, right? I mean, the pace of change, you've documented in the newsletter 
has just been crazy. <laughs> yeah, back then I was like, oh, should I even write about AI? It's not really here yet. Maybe I just make it about spatial computing, maybe just crypto. And uh, glad that I kept close to the basket because now this, these things are all converging, right? I think this is the most important trifecta that exists and it's the most fundamental thing that is going to change how we live day in and day out. Yeah. And it's that convergence of what people call the metaverse. And I know that you've got interesting takes on that term even, so we can get into that. Mm -hmm. That convergence though of what people call the metaverse and AI, where I think some of your most powerful thinking lies. And we're gonna we're gonna go on a journey to get to 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 get to that. But to set the context here, I mean, you wrote a, a piece about the launch of the Apple Vision Pro that got a whole lot of attention. And I want to dive into that. But for people to understand why that piece is so interesting, they need to understand a little bit about your background. And I, I hinted at this in the intro. You were at a startup trying to nail, 2017, 2018, trying to nail a mixed reality, virtual reality headset. Talk to us about that experience and about what it taught you about the metaverse, virtual reality, why this stuff is so hard. And then we'll get on to why you think that maybe, just maybe, Apple have nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. For people that really want to put themselves in the meta, the OG meta experience, we have to clarify that, right? <laughs> it's weird now seeing Facebook called meta. It's like this omnipresent tombstone and reminder of what, what could have been. But Meta was really um, the exact same story as a company called General Magic. And for people who don't know General Magic, it's a must-watch documentary about a company that's trying to build the iPhone, gosh, back in the early 90s, I believe. And, and it's, a tale. it's a cautionary tale of timing, uh, a cautionary tale of trying to do too much, perhaps, trying to build the full stack. Um, and we had an amazing vision. And, and the vision is what drove us uh, to try to do the impossible, which is to build everything. So we were trying to build a computer vision stack, our own algorithms for what's called SLAM, simultaneous localization and mapping. That's the tech that you see in, uh, in the phone when it does AR. It's a similar tech you see in self-driving cars. We were trying to build our own hands tracking algorithms to do direct manipulation. We were building our own display system, our own operating system. Um, the hardware and man, <laughs> people say hardware is hard, but I think after that experience, it's, it's understated, but we were trying to do all that because our, our CEO is very passionate about doing something unique, which was building what he called a zero learning curve computer. Right. And today, if you try to put a computer or technology in front of a grandma or a child or someone in, you know, Africa, who's not exposed to this stuff. It's not intuitive how to pick it up and use it. Yet, you know, the human mind has evolved to, intu to intuitively know how to navigate the real world and interact with the world in 3D space. And so we were trying to merge those two things. We we're trying to build a computer that when you put it on, just like a child can see a hammer and pick it up and start, you know, banging with it. They just know that evolutionary, in an evolutionary sense. We want to build that same kind of experience with a human computer interface. Um, all right, you just pick it up, you know how to use it, and you all of a sudden have superpowers without having to even think about knowing how to code, program, type, navigate all the abstract symbology that is the current interface of folders and trash cans and 
you know, like I'm, I'm looking at, I have, you know, my email over here and it's just like, just this like all these symbols and lines. It's just not a really good human simple interface. So that's what we were doing at Meta. It, it still drives me to this day. And I think that's what Apple nailed, right? This notion of a zero learning curve computer. I, you know, people who try it, they say that your intuition is the controller. You just put it on all of a sudden your eyes and your hands become the input and you're just, you're just navigating space. And so I think that's, there's a lot to unpack and what that means for humanity on lots of fronts, but I think that's, that's what we were trying to do. And that's what Apple ended up nailing. Um, yeah. So kudos yeah. to them. Yeah. And I want people to be super clear that when you talk about meta in this instance, we're not talking yet about the meta we all know. We're talking about a completely different company, a startup called Meta, where you were trying to nail this kind of mixed reality headset. And it's mm -hmm. the same vision. It's about bringing the internet, bringing digital space into the world around us. Yeah. Why didn't you nail it? What are the fiendishly difficult problems there? I mean, that's mm. a huge question, but... <laughs> Is there was, the there was a few things. Is I mean, the hardware where we did nail it, we had an incredible display that even to this moment is probably the best augmented reality display out there. And, and that display exists and lives to this day, by the way, there's a company that acquired RIP called campfire 3d and they're using the meta three headset technology. And it had a huge field of view. It had super high resolution. Um, it turns out that was the, <laughs> that was the easy part. Um, I think one of the interesting reasons we failed was we were overly dogmatic. We were super dogmatic that we had to get rid of existing inputs, right? Like to us, the mouse, the controller, flat screens was the devil. <laughs> like, you are not allowed to use that. And our CEO, he, so he has a TED talk, by the way. Everyone should watch the TED talk. Um, it's incredibly prescient for this moment in time. It just talks about the zero learning curve computer and talks about the other mission, which was just to get us to look up from our screens, right? Our CEO tells a story about him being at a bar with a friend and they're deep in a flow state conversation. He pulls out his phone and that moment is lost. And I think it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for how these windows and rectangles in our pockets really do ruin us in so many ways. But back to what I was saying about the, the dogma, we were taking that to an extreme. And it got to a point where we were really trying to be able to interact with our hands and our hand tracking technology was not good. <laughs> when really what we should have done and thought of is like, you know, um, path dependency is a thing, right? People really know how to navigate with controllers and a mouse. And maybe that's a better stepping stone, right? Maybe we should think about 3D and immersive experiences um, in regards to the tools we already have and create stepping stones to this vision of the zero learning curve computer. And you're seeing that take effect now that, and that the, the most prominent metaverse experiences are not VR, they're not AR, they're on your computer, they're on a browser and you're navigating just like you navigate a video game. And so I think thinking about path dependency and how you can leverage ways of working and doing things people already know and then over time migrate them to that um, ideal end state is something that we could have done better. Yeah. And obviously this work, as I said, you know, gives you such a powerful perspective on what's happening now. You know, the huge wave of hype we had around the metaverse in like 21, 22, which, which has died down and we're now in kind of a metaverse winter. 
but also the launch of the Apple Vision Pro, you know, Apple making exactly the kind of headset, essentially, that you were trying to make at this startup meta back in the day. I mean, back in the day, like in 2017. Mm. (laughs) Um, There was such a wave of skepticism around the Apple Vision Pro launch. And that's partly Mm. because we are so deep in this metaverse skepticism moment right now. What's your take on that? You know, why is Mm -hmm. it that you believe that Apple might have finally nailed the kind of immersive, augmented reality, mixed reality experience that we're talking about here? Oh, yeah, it's it's fun to talk about, but bittersweet because I'm just jealous uh, of the extent to which I think <laughs> they, they they nailed it, right? Um, and, and they even talk about this notion of spatial design principles, which was something that we wrote down and, and shared with them back in the day. But uh, the reason they nailed it, see, I, there's, there's a quote by Palmer Lucky. It's, it's a tweet he had back in like 2016. Um, you know, Palmer and Palmer left Meta Oculus because of the friction that occurred around this quote, which and what he said was, before VR can become something that everyone can afford, it must first become something that everyone wants, right? And so you look at most VR today, people have been trying to get the cost down, trying to get the cost down, trying to make it affordable. And it's, it's led to an experience that's novel, but not something that people are coming back to. And so Apple was smart. They, they recognized that. And, and they recognized that it was not going to be smart to go into a red ocean space and be another Me Too device in that lower end of the spectrum. So they wanted to go high end and make this really desirable, make it delightful. And um, they, so what they do, they reach into the future five years, hold the most insane technology forward, invented new technology. And yes, the, the price is high as a result, but they made the right trade-offs, right? Because they, they, they chose to be deficient on vectors that the progress of technology, I think, will naturally take care of, right? Things like the price, things like the battery power, things like um, the tether to the battery pack, uh, things like the overall size, right? The arrow of progress is going to dissolve those things. And then they're going to emerge as a result with having, uh, I think, captured the market and have better technology uh, in things that are harder to invent today. So that's why I think they nailed it from a, a, a strategy perspective. I think they also just nailed it because they were very pragmatic about the first use case too, which I think is just, it's kind of almost too obvious and some people still don't really believe it, but the whole infinite display use case, I think is going to be bigger than most people. I mean, they might sell out just from that use case alone. I mean, think about how many people are out there working remote and traveling, you know, crypto traders, uh, gamers, um, people who are doing all kinds of like spreadsheet and analysts and even, even content creators, with all their video screens, right? You put this headset on, whoop, you're now Iron Man. So I think they, they thought about that. And then they, they also were smart about just making sure it was something that was going to wow people. And then from there, because it's such a experience, it's so magical. You're going to have developers come to it and then discover all the other use cases that people aren't thinking about. And we can talk more about those use cases as well, because that's another area of objection that I tried to, tried to tackle in the essay. Yeah. And, and like you say, I mean, I, I so agree with that perspective that, look, you know, Apple didn't invent the smartphone. They, they perfected it. Right. And so often when you have that, you know, when you have 
when you have a, a consumer facing technology trend, there's just deep skepticism and deep skepticism and skepticism until someone finally perfects the user experience. And I, mm -hmm. and if I understand you right, I think that you believe it looks as though they have perfected mm -hmm. or at least got a long way towards perfecting that first use case user experience, which is, which is yeah. putting an immersive screen in our environment. Well, yeah, that, that's just one of them. But it's also the little things, right? They, what they did was amazing to me is they rubbed away all the rough edges. For example, I tried the Oculus Quest 3 recently and it was, it was a very cool experience. It's a great device. It's much lighter. Uh, it has a similar pass through. But then my phone rang and I picked it up and I looked down and it was just blurry. And so then I had to like take off the headset, look at my phone, type it in. And, put, and that was a small little friction point. And, but it adds up. And when you try with the Apple headset, I've talked to people who've done this, you pull your phone out and it's, even though it's passed through, you can still see your phone as if you're looking through in glass, super clear. And so you're not having to move back and forth between these two modes, right? You put this thing on and you're just in one mode and you can do everything in that one mode. So I think it's those rough, it's those paper cuts that I think Apple figured out how to solve. Yeah. And I think for, for viewers out there, I mean, putting your thinking, you know, go and check out Evan's um, essays on the Apple Vision Pro um, and go and watch the the incredible conversation I had recently with Robert Scoble, who's obviously obsessed with Apple, obsessed with the metaverse and mixed reality or what he calls metaverse 2.0 and sees the Apple Vision Pro as as one part of an even broader strategy to build essentially a kind of one to one mirror world in virtual space and to have everyone able to access that that mirror world. You know, he Robert is amazing on on how he believes Apple is seeking to sort of conquer the metaverse and, and, and own this, this mega trend inside the exponential age. You know, let's get, let's go a little broader here and a, even a little more philosophical. Why does all this matter so much? Like what does the metaverse mean to you? And what are some of the, what are the big implications of it for society? Because as I say, you know, 21, 22, there's a huge amount of hype, as is often the case. Some of it was a little silly. Now we're in a moment of deep skepticism. Where long term do you think the underlying trend is, is heading and why does it matter so much? Mm. I think uh, for me, there's three ways it matters so much. One has to do with work and the way we work. Um, the other has to do with just the way we communicate and collaborate more broadly and within the context of trying to solve some of the big challenges we face in the world. And then the third, the third is a bit more existential and has to do with, you know, how do we really compete in the age of AI and become relevant in the age of AI? So on the work front, I like to tell people, don't think of this as like AR, VR, 3D, or even spatial computing. Think of it as experiential computing. And I like to think about that particularly in the context of like learning and, and knowledge transfer. And you think about the workplace today and how we learn, how we just work in general. Now we're working in these flat interfaces, we're working in with PDFs and PowerPoints to educate and train. And it really all kind of sucks if you think about what it could be, <laughs> right? If you really use your imagination. And you know, what people, crave in their day-to-day -day life is fun and experiences. And 
but then in the workplace, we're trying to convey things that are experiential, right? How to fix a pump on a machine, how to assemble something, how to build a building. These are all things that to do well, we need to have experienced the thing, but we teach them in a very non-experiential way. And so what happens when all of a sudden we can do knowledge, knowledge transfer where you experience the thing one for one and the act of doing the thing is more experiential in itself. You could talk about all different implications of that, but to me, like one of the more, one of the more fun ones is that life becomes just more engaging, more interesting, more fun. Even the drudgery of you know, emails and certain things becomes just a bit more delightful and magical. So I think, I think that's super important. I think it's really important too, when you think about what's happening with the workforce, right? You have an older workforce leaving lots of industries, especially frontline workers, lots of domain knowledge going with them. And then you have this huge void and a huge talent void. And so how do you get young people to not just want to learn how to do these things, but then to do it well and enjoy doing it and then retain those people. So I, I think that there's something there around experiential interfaces, more fun experiences across all types of work. to better do knowledge transfer and to keep people engaged in day to day basis. And especially with younger people who, you know, they were, they're born digital natives. So that, that's one thing. In turn, I mentioned the idea of, you know, all the challenges we face in the world. Some of them are so complex, right? It's so hard to come up with answers, to, to think of solutions. We don't have solutions to a lot of them yet. But I think what we can do is if we, can, we can go further upstream and at least solve something that helps us get to those solutions faster, which is just better communication, better collaboration. Um, there, there's this quote I use in the article, and I use it all the time. It's a Terrence McKenna quote, and he was kind of one of the one of the OGs of cyberspace and the metaverse. And he um, he says that language, if you think about it, really, it's, it's just small mouth noises moving through space. It's not a very wide band form of communication. And he he, he imagines, you know, with with augmented virtual realities, we now have a true mirror of the mind, a form of telepathy, if you will. And so what happens when we have telepathy? Like, and if you look at some of the things that are causing friction in the world, some of the biggest crises we face, they stem from a lack of understanding. They stem from a lack of empathy in the world. And then they stem, stem from poor decision-making because we don't have all the information and all the right perspective. And so I think spatial computing gives us the perspective we need right, to make better decisions, to understand the other's perspective in a big way. And so that's pretty philosophical and fundamental, but... I stand by it. I mean, I don't know how you could argue with that not being true. And I guess the, the third thing is, is more about on the, on, the, on the AI front, but I'll, I'll pause on that because I think we have maybe some plans to talk about the, the merging of AI and, and VR and what, what that means and why that matters a bit later. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm intrigued by the, by the work side of it. You know, 
people who, who've, who've listened to previous conversations with me, and, and especially those who've read my essays in Rao's research service, GMI, mm-hmm. know that I'm pretty obsessed with um, NVIDIA's Omniverse platform, which is a platform mm-hmm. to create incredible simulations of, of physical reality um, mm-hmm. in, in, inside a simulated world, and to be able to sort of play and tinker and experiment endlessly with that. Um, and they're striking incredible enterprise deals with the likes of, you know, BMW, who are simulating essentially entire factories inside Omniverse, or retail giants like Kroger's, who are sort of simulating their their retail floors inside Omniverse mm-hmm. and experimenting with kind of footfall flow and customer traffic flow inside simulated worlds. Yeah, it seems to me that for many people their first experience of the of the metaverse will be at work is yeah, that is that no a future it's, you you can buy into it's it's already happening right i see it every single day that's that's what gets me really excited is that it's it's all happening now omniverse is a big part of it uh, nvidia's telling a great story there and uh brands you know there, there was a metaverse hype and people can you know um holes in the metaverse all they want, but it did its job, which was awareness and marketing. And the amount of inbound we've gotten from, from people, and I'm at, I'm at AWS, the inbound is just through the roof and it's not waiting for headsets. It's getting 3D experiences on a browser, on a tablet, on a phone, right? Back to the whole path dependency thing we talked about, right? It's leveraged that in the right way. And yeah, they're, they're recognizing the benefits of experiential computing. And in this case, simulation training is the biggest one, but that's tra- training is just a form of simulation, but simulation is a way to experience the future, <laughs> right? Uh, know the future and make better predictions, make better decisions. And so that's another huge fundamental impact of what this is all going to mean. We're going to now have the ability to play out scenarios, play out what ifs, predict the future, and then not hedge our bets and tiptoe our way towards a building a factory or building a city or whatever it might be, but we can go all in on that thing and be way more efficient and move at the speed of light. And I just, the way that that has impacts downstream on just so many things, it just kind of makes your head spin. (laughs) Right, right. And how long do you think it is? You know, this is where we can play with the kind of crystal ball, which I understand no one has, but I can't resist asking these questions. How long do you think it is, though, until this becomes a genuine consumer-facing reality in a way that, that reshapes the texture of billions of people's lives like the iPhone did back in 2007, 2008, 2009? You know, again, if you listen to Robert and he's prone to optimistic timelines, I think it's fair to say that. He'll tell you that, you know, five years' time, the headset will be a pair of glasses that will project, you know, incredible mixed reality uh, into the physical environment around you and it'll be affordable and millions of people by then will will be wearing that kind of um, that kind of technology. What's your view on that? Mm. I think in five years, I'm trying to be cautiously optimistic. I think in five years, it's more of for the AR glasses form factor. Probably more of the BlackBerry moment, with the iPhone moment being another two or three years away. Because I think, in, I mean, I just know how hard it is, like, and I know how far we are, our way we are from having the ability to fit the right compute and processing power on one headset and or even offload it 
cloud or the edge with the right latency. I love the model of, yeah, we're waiting for the kind of BlackBerry moment and then we'll have the iPhone moment. I think that's a, that's a, that's a handy way of talking about it. What does it do, though? Uh, one, one last comment, though, real, real quick, sure. if you don't mind. I, I think, and we can, maybe this parlays to your next question, but, um, you know, the, the glasses that Meta just released that have the, the AI capability, and then um, I was listening to a Ben Thompson podcast, and he tried an experience in which I think he was wearing glasses. I don't know what or who, but it had the chat GPT um, voice capability in there. And like, that is augmented reality, right? It's, it's not a visual experience to it, but I mean, to me, to me, that very much is the metaverse being here now. And the, the metaverse doesn't have to be the visual component, right? It's just one of the components. And so there's a lot, there's a lot we can unpack with that, but I think that's important to, to state is that there's a world in which the glasses that are shipping next quarter are metaverse glasses. Right. No, it's super intriguing how our experience of baseline reality, so to speak, is being augmented by mm -hmm. it progressively augmented. And like you say, these glasses that are going to essentially talk to you feel another step along that road. With your more sociological hat on, you know, what does it do if millions of people, billions of people eventually, you know, if mixed reality does have that iPhone moment? To me, it feels the implications are just mind bending because essentially then you're in a world where people can customize physical reality, step out into their own physical realities. You'll have kind of, you know, communities and tribes online of that kind mm -hmm. of put their own skin on, on actual reality. And the London that I mm -hmm. walk out into can be a totally different London to the one, you know, my next door neighbor walks out into. Mm -hmm all kinds of really strange implications there, right? Socially. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, the way I think about it uh, at a high level is these things are going to inject our perceptual systems with maximum agency in any moment, at any time, in any place. And so what does that mean for us to like interact with each other and with the world? I, I think but I mean, the, the thing that I, and this is back to the whole medium energy thing. Like, I, I think it's so important for us to be thinking about, okay, maximum agency is great. Our perceptual systems, having information injected into them to have agency is interesting, but how do we do it in a way that doesn't erode our, our humanity? And, you know, you, you, you mentioned this idea of like, we all have our own skin on the world. I think that's true. I think it'll be, I think that'll happen in a, in a good way, mostly, because I think people do really like to um, gravitate towards tribes. And I think you will see large groups having a shared reality. But I don't think it's going to be overly fragmented. Because if you think about, you know, just evolution and how humans evolve, right? The, the more you're out of context with your tr other tribes or the real world, the, the, your likelihood of survival and like your fitness functions being maximized if you're kind of in your own little reality are, are going to diminish. I think, yes, there's going to be a period where that's going to happen a lot, but I think over, I think eventually we're going to realize that that isn't the right thing and the healthy thing. Um, it's kind of like, you know, everyone knows to not pull your phone out in the, in the, in the theater. Now it's just an, un, it's just an unspoken truth that just everyone has adopted. And it's kind of a weird example, but I think that's going to be something that applies with glasses and 
the ability to put skins in the world too. There's going to be these unspoken truths, these sort of um, principles that, that most people end up uh, subscribing to about how to interact with the virtual world and the real world and then both at the same time. Yeah, I think we'll see. We'll have to see the evolution of a whole load of new kind of norms, exactly, and behaviors. Just like you say, you know, keep your phone off in the theater and all that stuff. It's but it's going to get sort of exponentially stranger than that as this technology progresses. <laughs> so yeah, as you said, let's talk about Meta, the the Meta this time. Mm. When you launched Medium Energy, Facebook had just become Meta. You know, this pivot to the metaverse. Everyone was talking about it. Um, we've talked a tiny bit about, you know, the meta technology and why maybe the experience is not as good as the experience you're getting with the Apple Vision Pro. You know, I think, yeah, mo that that's the vibe I get from most people. Mm -hmm. Before we get into meta and AI, I mean, do you see meta then and Apple as sort of fundamentally at war for the for this future, for the future of mixed reality and the metaverse as we're talking about it here? I think short-term, no, long-term, likely. You know, short-term, the people who are Apple fanatics and love to use Apple and are Apple creators, they're just, they're not Facebook fanatics too, right? It's just, it's just a very different type of user very different um, use case are going after, uh, you know, social versus productivity. But then there are these interesting threads uh, where they do intersect and do compete. Like for example, I think the best use case for the Apple is going to be the, um, the, the, the live events, the live sports experiences. So they acquired a company called next VR puts you front, you know, in the, in the, front row, court side of NBA games or sports games or concerts. And Meta also went off and tried to build their, a similar version of that. I think it's also NBA, if I'm not mistaken. And oh, yeah, I mean, it's really about, I think it's going to be really be about what people, I mean, I think privacy is going to be a big part of this and trust. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably where the battle is, is won and lost. And, and also just like coolness. Apple knows how to make this stuff cool and fashionable and interesting and desirable. I don't think best Facebook or Meta can, it can do that. Now, what I am seeing the Meta ethos change a little bit. And I think they're starting to wake up to that fact that they're not and haven't been desirable. And it starts with Mark Zuckerberg, right? He, up until recently, he hadn't really been someone that people um, look at and say, oh, I want to be like that guy. Like he was viewed as, Mark, no offense if you're listening, not that I know the guy, but uh, you know, he was a robot and he, people didn't, like people couldn't empathize with him or really listen to what he said and believe what he said. But now he's, you know, going on podcasts and being more himself. Now he's going on talking about the mission in different ways. It's not the metaverse anymore. It's this fusion of the physical and the digital. He's going on stage at MetaConnect and wearing a t-shirt and not being overly scripted. He's becoming a bit more likable. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's, it, it, I think a lot of it might be a brand war um, and like a culture war and, a, and like a fashion war uh, over time. And, and you look at Meta, they have that Ray-Bans partnership. And so maybe that's where they kind of can compete and be cool. 
um, yeah. and, and go after Apple's cool factor. And so, yes, overall, it, it is a war. It's going to be a war for developers at the end of the day. Um, and there, it's also going to be a war between open source, open and closed systems, right? You look at what Meta is doing with AI, all chips on open source. Um, I think they're changing their tune too with on the VR front. With Apple, it's just closed ecosystem. You know, you're going to build the way we want you to build. You're going to go through our app store. And so that's the chink in Apple's armor. It's really right? interesting. So, so overall, I'm just kind of throwing out these little battle fronts that are going to be worth, yeah, worth monitoring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I find it really interesting. You know, one of the fundamental differences, it seems to me, is that Apple is focused primarily on on the kind of single player experience, the infinite display, as you say, essentially having ha projecting a screen into the environment around us. Whereas Meta came out hard initially with the with the social experience, you know, grounded in their foundations as a social company. But it's so much harder to nail that social experience and create an environment where people really feel that they're having meaningful in-person interactions with friends. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's the real dream of the metaverse, this feeling, to me anyway, this feeling of in-person presence with others inside a virtual world. It's just super hard to nail it. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's get into AI, because as I said right at the top of the show, I mean, some of your most powerful thinking is on the way AI and the metaverse, as we're describing it currently, intersect. And you see that emerging really powerfully at Meta. I mean, they just did their, you know, a series of product launches, weaving their large language model, their AI, their equivalent of GPT-4, essentially. Um, through their product line, uh, led by these AI-fueled virtual companions, little buddies, you know, that will chat to you, that strangely enough are kind of backed by and have the face of celebrities like Paris Hilton and Snoop Dogg and all the rest of it. So you're going to be able to talk to these celebrities. That's going to be fueled by AI. They're not playing themselves, if that makes sense. They're playing other characters. So it's a little confusing. <laughs> what do you think Meta is doing there? And, and talk to us then about your broader vision of, of the role AI plays in all of this and how it intersects with the, with the metaverse. Yeah, I think Meta is just experimenting, right? They're kind of just learning as they go. And I, Mark even says this in, in some podcasts. They're kind of stumbling upon things. Even he was surprised by how awesome the experience was of AI and the Ray-Bans glasses and how maybe that's the, that's the thing. And the whole visual element is just secondary and complementary to it all. I think, um, I think that's probably where Meta currently has the advantage over most is that they are 
the one company, they, they aren't the best for spatial computing. They aren't the best for AI, but they have really good versions of both. And so the merging of those two things, is gonna be really, really important. And I mean, will Apple catch up? Most likely we'll, we'll see. They haven't, I mean, history hasn't really indicated that with what, um, what Siri has been, but I think they eventually will. But the, the reason why I think the AI plus spatial battlefront is the most important one is that yes, AI is going to be an incredible companion to us, but then how do we become a good companion in, in return? How do we become relevant and kind of, you know, hit the ball back and forth, uh, if you will, with, with AI. And so right now we just use these text boxes. Um, that's not really, really powerful um, interface at all. And over the fullness of time, AI, AI is going to be producing just a deluge of information and insights and ideas and new products. It's going to be helping us, you know, think about and discover things deep in the oceans, in space, right? These are all pretty abstract uh, places for us. And so how, how are we going to into it, understand what AI is coming up with and understanding? I think it has to be very visual. I think it has to be experiential. And I think that um, it's the only way we're going to be able to remain in the loop with AI. And so that I use a quote in the article. It's like, when, when AI comes up with an answer or an idea, it's like, don't tell me, show me. And so the ability to be hands-free walking around and just see the plan come to life or see the hotel I'm going to go to, um, see the interior of the place I want to design, like that, that's all going to be necessary in order for us to even utilize AI in the most powerful way. I think this is such a powerful idea, you know, and it just it just runs so deep because everyone now is in this space where they're super excited to be, you know, essentially talking to chat GPT, asking it questions, getting text results back. And they're like, hey, I'm communing with AI. This is amazing. And it is amazing. But what you're saying taps so powerfully into this deep sense that I feel of AI as a kind of emerging alien way of seeing the world that's going mm -hmm. to discern yep. things about the world that just are completely, essentially mm -hmm. to, from our point of view, unhinged or incomprehensible, mm -hmm. but deeply true, deeply actionable. And it has mm -hmm. to essentially find a way of translating that into language we can understand. And if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is, look, you know, right now you've got chat GPT, you know, you're batting text back and forth. But we'll head to a world where AI builds virtual worlds of its own that we can step into or builds new objects inside virtual worlds that we're already in, whatever it is, to help us understand what it is it wants to tell us. Is that, is that right? Yeah, exactly right. I mean... Exactly right. My, my favorite example is, uh, I always tie it back to education and, and um, most people my age and beyond probably watch the, the, the show in school called the magic school bus. I think it was like Miss Frizzy and you get in the little bus and you fly through the human body. You fly into space, you fly into the volcano. I'm just like, okay, guess what? Now we can be in that magic school bus. And what does that mean for so many things, not just education, but you know, healthcare and space exploration, the list goes on and on. Right. What does it mean when, when um, AI can build you know, a virtual model of a heart to, to tell surgeons something particular about this heart or a virtual model of the brain or a virtual model of this engine we're trying to develop to show us exactly, as you say, what it is that it's, it's discovered. 
And I think the idea that we're going to enter into that that kind of symbiotic relationship <laughs> with 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 machine intelligence is just deeply, deeply exciting. And it's not an idea I've seen articulated quite in that way anywhere else. In that case, I, do you... I, I, I just can't believe that we're going to we're alive to see all this stuff happen. I mean, doesn't this yeah, sort right? of just like, I currently have goosebumps on, on my arms and in the Apple uh, essay, I said, I, t- I tell a story that when I first saw a really good experience, I cried and like, because we're, like, we get to live through this moment. <laughs> like, that's such a unique and powerful and special thing. And so like, whenever I'm in the dumps and, you know, blue or sad about something, that's, that's one of the main things I tell myself to remind me like, hey, look at the moment we're all living in. This is a pretty special time. Right. I mean, I just so feel the same way. And it, uh, and and at its heart, that is what fuels this content series, The Exponential Age, you know, which which is this week, but, uh, you know, runs more broadly across Real Vision. Just this deep sense of wonder and amazement at what we are watching unfold and what we're about to watch unfold. Just mm-hmm. the incredible moment that we're we're alive at. And of course, the opportunity, you know, the fascination in it and the opportunity latent in it. Um, and we can talk. But, but, but not, just not everyone's second. excited about us, right? That That's the problem. No, you know, no. So like a, lot of, a lot of people, like it's very polarizing. Like there's people like us who are giddy beyond belief. And you got other people who are just writhing with fear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, exactly, exactly. And I mean, let well, okay, one example, and then we can get a little deeper into this. I mean, you have Demis Hassabis today of DeepMind, of course, Google DeepMind, and he's a incredible AI genius, I think it's fair to say, saying the risks posed by AI need to be taken as seriously as the risks posed by climate change. What is your take? And I know this is, you know, we could do a come back for a whole other conversation on this, but what is your take on that kind of AI concern in some quarters, AI doomerism and the calls for regulation and, and all the rest of it? What do, what do you think of all that? I guess before I dive into it, I'll say that, you know, yes, I'm a techno optimist, but I'm not ignorant to the risks and some of the things that are happening that are negative. I mean, just my own relationship with my phone is one that I loathe in many ways. So I think the way I like to think about it, and this ties to the whole theme of medium energy, which is, you know, threading the needle or walking the line of paradox, right? Two things can be true at the same time, but how, how you weigh those truths is, is what matters most. And so towards that effort of weighing two truths, I mean, I think the, the, the real risk here is this notion of the precautionary principle. This is something that um, Mark Andreessen talks about in his recent Techno Optimist Manifesto. And the precautionary principle is this idea that, you know, um, right now, humanity and governments are really taking the, be- the, the path of it's better to be safe than sorry. If you think about most of human history, right, with technology, we were pretty good at realizing a lot of the, 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 the pros of fire or the pros of a hammer outweighed the cons of the hammer being a weapon or fire burning a village versus cooking food, right? And we were able to navigate that because I think it was pretty intuitive how the good outweighed the bad. The challenge we're facing now is that with exponential tech, with AI, it's not as intuitive and and it's not as easy to see how that good outweighs the bad. And that that happened to us back in the 70s and 80s, um, like the first moment where the precautionary principle 
really gripped us was uh, all around like nuclear energy. And we chose to be better, or to be um, rather safe than sorry. And I think, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, people are waking up and realizing, oh man, that was, that was silly. That was not the right path. Like this technology had so much power and so much good. And so I think that there were elements of what we did with nuclear that were smart and there were certain cautions, precautions that we definitely needed to take. But man, to throw water on the fire and douse it out completely and set us back 30, 40 years and to think about what could have and should have been and how much more prosperous certain people would be if we had nuclear energy, how uh, geopolitically we wouldn't have the tensions we're having now um, in the world if we weren't so dependent upon all these other forms of energy. And so what does that mean in the world of AI? And so I, I guess the way I have to think about it is like the risk here is the precautionary principle. It's not do that again with AI. Let's navigate it appropriately. I think the most important thing we can do, and we're doing it here, is just tell better stories and better educate people about how this tech really works and its limitations really are. And also show people some amazing things that are happening to allow us to control this stuff and relegate it to a tool that works for us. I mean, I think there's a paper came out recently um, that was a breakthrough and being able to actually diagnose these neural networks and like point to how decisions are being made. Once we can do that and we already have the R&D prove that we can, like all of this fear just, I think, starts to get pulled away. So we can start to monitor, you know, how conscious, if you will, or how uh, overly intelligent, if that's the right word, AI is going to get in, you know, in our disfavor, right? If, if AI is starting to do things and think things and plan things, we can start seeing it and monitor it. And so overall, I think it's all overblown. Obviously, as you can tell, I think that we just need to um, be able to better hold two things in our mind at the same time and then let the good outweigh the bad because it's obvious that the good will outweigh the bad, in my opinion. Yeah. And I just, I, I'm so interested in for example, Stability AI um, and their mission essentially to open source, you know, AI for the people. I think there's something meaningful around addressing concerns of a, a sort of concentration of power and concentration of machine intelligence power inside a few organizations or inside a few hands. And it's just going to be super interesting to see how that front uh, evolves and the mission of Stability AI and others evolves in the years ahead. Because I know that you're huge on this, and this is where our, you know, this is where our, I think, mindset overlaps um, most closely. Is that we're we're deeply interested in, yes, of course, the technologies and the technology trends driving all of this forward, but in their impact on their collision with with human beings um, and what it means to be human. This technology in the end, or these technologies, it feels to me. Are, are a deep challenge to our conception of ourselves and our conception of, of ordinary everyday life and, and the textures and the feelings of that, um, which is amazing, thrilling, but also scary. Uh, is that where your head is at? And what do you do? What do you do personally to sort of try to navigate through this just this wild period of change? Hmm. I, I write, <laughs> I, I write, I write to learn and to stay on top of this stuff. Um, I write, remind myself the power of flow states 
and the power of like tapping into creativity. Cause I, I think people look at this stuff and oh, you know, creativity is dead. Um, and I just think when I see AI becoming creative in itself, me, just like in sports or something, right? You see your, your, your peers getting better at something like that should drive us to want to get better at that thing too, so that we can stay relevant and, um, and better, you know, uh, collaborate with, with AI. And in terms of, of, the, of the writing, I think what I, what I mean by that beyond just the flow state side of things is that, uh, and this is a quote by, by Ray Bradbury, I talk about it in my AI essay, which is this idea of to, to be a good writer, be a good creator in general, when you sit the typewriter, thinking, thinking is the enemy, right? You need to just feel. And I think that's the age we're moving into, right? I think we need to all get way better at intuition, way better at feeling. I think everyone's thinking too much and trying too hard and overanalyzing. And if you look at what happens, whether it's on an individual basis or at, at you know, societal scale, just like the whole nuclear energy thing, we, we thought way too hard and we thought our way into a tizzy of doom and then we created rules that squashed it. Um, and we do that to ourselves as individuals. Like I do it to myself all the time. I, I overthink, um, you know, something I did at work, something I said on a date, and it just creates anxiety. And so um, I think the way that I think about survival in this age is being able to tap into our intuition, get better at feeling, and also just having really, really good practices for fully unplugging. I, I, I love to fly fish. Like fly fishing is my sanctuary. And as much as I love the metaverse and AI and all these things, I love nothing more than the real world, the, the, the real world metaverse, which is standing in a river, casting a fly, also a flow state thing, also a time you're not thinking, you're just feeling. And so I guess that's my message to people is like, we just gotta get better at, at feeling and, and then in feeling and being more intuitive, we can use that to be more creative in ways. And then that version of creativity is the way that we can best leverage AI. AI is going to do the thinking. AI is going to produce all kinds of options. And we got to intuit our way through those and feel out the right ones and then deploy them the right way. So I think that's a cool symbiosis between AI and, and humans is the thinking versus feeling the perfect peanut butter and jelly of the two. It's a beautiful, inspiring message. And it just feels like <laughs> at the heart of that is if we get better at understanding who we are and understanding ourselves, that's when we can truly leverage the power of these technologies. And, and this is where the name, and this is a great place to end on, I think, this is where the name Medium Energy, your newsletter name, comes from. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It um, started as a, a music playlist, actually. It was a playlist I used to get into flow states. And it was you know, songs that were not too mellow or too slow, but also that were not too frenetic and too high energy. But there were songs that were right in that Goldilocks zone, right? Just enough energy to keep you focused and alert, but also enough kind of slower beats to keep you relaxed and chilled out. And so this, this notion of creating a perfect and healthy tension between two opposite things, that's, I started to lock on, oh, that's medium energy. That is, I guess the definition I use, and how I use it in this context is medium energy is a state of harmony between being human and technology and find that balance within both those things, um, between all the opposite things that are both true, but need to be held together. And, um, 
Yeah, that's that's the general mantra. I think it's a good mantra and mindset for for the exponential age. I think it's a crucial, uh, just a deeply valuable framework for helping people out there na- navigate the exponential age. Uh, and and I hope that you know the videos that we're doing this week on the exponential age and future videos in this series too do exactly that. Help people achieve something of that balance of look, yes, deep understanding of the technologies in play and how they work, how they're evolving, the big players in the space, the challenges, the threats, obviously the opportunities, all of that and that kind of analytical part of our brain and increasingly we can be assisted by AI as we seek that understanding. But the other side of navigating the exponential age too, which is about who are we as human beings? What are our deepest values? When are we at our most creative? How do we navigate through this insane wave of change that's coming because only when we can center ourselves and when we can do that can we successfully explore the other side of the equation the understanding the opportunity and all the rest of it and i really hope that these exponential age videos um, and that content series helps people deeply to do that and that is why you are such a valuable guest and such a valuable voice in all this evan so please <laughs> come back and talk to us again. That was absolutely I'd love exciting. to. This was fun. Thank <laughs> you. Very fun. Um, to wrap up, just tell people where they can find you and your work. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a Substack newsletter. It's uh, mediumenergy.io is the um, website there. And then, yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Evan Helda. Um, on Instagram, I'm at eHelda5. And yeah, I would love for people to subscribe if they like some of these ideas. More to come for sure. I'm going to do some deep dives on some companies in the humanoid robotics space. I'm going to do some deeper dives into Bitcoin soon since we're start kind of getting a resurgence here. And um, yeah, I would love to work with you more and keep these conversations going. I'm, I'm going to also uh, launch a podcast soon myself. Uh, right. It kind of comp- it kind of complements the newsletter. So keep keep your eyes peeled for that. Amazing. Yeah. And of course, we yeah we're it feels we can all feel we're at the eve of a, of of a really interesting phase again when it comes to crypto. That could fuel another amazing conversation. But for now, thank you so much for bringing that yin yes, and yang, that balance when it comes to the exponential age, Evan. Um, we will keep navigating the exponential age here on Real Vision, and we'll see you all really soon. Thanks. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality, and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year, and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. 